Tuesday of every month. We're recording this meeting and we're also streaming on Facebook Live. So after the call, please go to our uh, Facebook page and like us and follow us and share tonight's call with others. We hope our calls inspire, educate, and motivate you to mobilize for peace with us. Our calls feature peace innovators on a variety of topics related to strategies that create conditions for peace. On a personal level, we create peace by being peace. Our personal strategies are empathy, compassion, and connection with ourselves and others. These are the building blocks of all peace building locally, nationally, and internationally. So the first hour of our call will be our featured guest speaker, John Kenyon. I'll introduce him a little later. And we've extended tonight's call by 15 minutes to commemorate 20 years of the Department of Peacebuilding legislation. We had a special event this past uh, Sunday with Dennis Kucinich, who is running for mayor of Cleveland and his platform includes a city level Department of Peacebuilding. So the link in the chat will take you to the Facebook recording. And we also commemorated this 20 year milestone on our Hope Circle this past Saturday. If you wanna to listen to that, the recording can be accessed through the link in the, in the chat. So before we take a moment to settle on the Tuesday, before we take a moment to settle, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that the lands on which we gather are the ancestral and traditional lands of native and indigenous peoples of the Americas, known as Turtle Island to many. I wanna express gratitude for their stewardship of this land throughout the generations. We pay our respect to elders, both past and present. And if you don't know the native lands on which you live, uh, go to the link in the chat and you can find out. So let's take a moment to settle. You can close your eyes or just soft eyes, look down. And just breathe in for four, hold for four, and then breathe out for four. So let's just do it together. Breathe in for four. Hold and release. One more. Breathe in. Hold and release. Just a couple more times on your own. And keep breathing and notice any tension in your body. Notice your thighs and your buttocks and see if you can release any tension that might be there. Notice your shoulders, your back, your neck. Maybe roll your neck a little bit from side to side. Notice your forehead between the eyebrows and above the eyebrows. 
see if you can soften that area. And let your jaw go slack. See if you can release any tension there. And then when you're ready, open your eyes and see who's, look around and see who's in the room. Welcome everyone. So I'd like to introduce Nancy Merritt. She joined the Department of Peacebuilding Campaign in 2004 and has worked for passage of the legislation ever since then. She served as state coordinator of California for over 15 years. Nancy is a founding member of the Peace Alliance National Department of Peacebuilding Committee formed in early 2011. She represents the Department of Peacebuilding Campaign on the Peace Alliance Leadership Council. And she's been instrumental in organizing actions and lobbying days for this legislation. I've known Nancy since 2004, love working with her. Her dedication and her passion are contagious and we're lucky to have her. So Nancy, please uh, share with us what you'd like to share. Thank you, Kathy. Um, I, come, um, I come to you all from the Ohlone lands in the San Francisco Bay area and um, I'm really happy to be with you. Um, as most of you know, 20 years ago, almost to the day, Dennis Kucinich made history by proposing to elevate the importance of peace building in this country. He introduced the first modern era bill to create a cabinet level department of peace building, meaning the first bill to make the connection between international peace and domestic peace building. According to Oxfam, since the start of the COVID uh, pandemic, there's been a six-fold increase in people around the world facing famine-like conditions. Conflict was the main reason for this. As we commemorate the 20th anniversary of Department of Peace legislation in Congress, we reimagine how we deal with conflict. This legislation provides tools to prevent violence conflict in a way that honors all. Today and during this call, we remember the history and intent of the Department of Peace legislation, and we are making history ourselves by learning, acting, and moving forward on peace building. We just added two new co-sponsors to the bill, and um, we would love you all to help in that effort by um, contacting your own member of Congress. We have an action um, that'll be posted in the chat. It's very simple, one-click action. Um, so please do that. And then in um, July through September, we'll be holding several special events. We have a call on the 21st uh, next week, highlighting peace efforts around the time of the two world wars. We have four uh, DOP reimagining panel discussions in September, and we have virtual advocacy days, uh, congressional meetings also in September. So please uh, watch for these announcements and um, 
contact me, nancy at peacealliance.org, if you can participate in those. They're actually a lot of fun. So I think that'll be in the chat also. Um, and then stay tuned for the last 15 minutes of this call. You'll hear about um, a 1950 peace bill that was introduced, not by a Californian, but by a representative from West Virginia. And you'll hear a lot more about our history. So peace does impact all of us. A Department of Peace Building is more crucial now than ever. The theme of this year's International Day of Peace on September 21st is a turning point for humanity. It's up to all of us to work for that turning point and to advocate for a Department of Peace Building. So thank you for being here and back to you, Kathy. Thank you, Nancy. All right, so I'm gonna introduce John. John Kenyon is a longtime nonviolent communication practitioner and trainer. He has an MS in clinical psychology and has been a certified trainer of the Center for Nonviolent Communication for 20 plus years. John is also a co-founder of the Bay Area Nonviolent Communication Organization, Bay NVC. John has devoted his life and career to furthering human connection and cooperation around the world through empathic communication. He works with individuals and organizations and is a trainer, coach, mediator, speaker, and author. John has developed his work over more than 20 years and is the co-creator of the International Mediate Your Life training program based on the work of nonviolent communication. He has brought the training to people throughout the US and in countries around the world. John's mentor was nonviolent communication founder, Marshall Rosenberg, a global peacemaker whose work has deeply touched the lives of hundreds of thousands or more in over 70 countries around the world. Marshall described NBC as based on the principle of ahimsa, the natural state of compassion when no violence is present in the heart. John is a leader in the global NBC community and worked closely with Marshall over a decade. John believes in the importance of empathic communication in creating a culture of peace. He's been hosting online Zoom conversations to support in healing the political divide. I've attended and I recommend you try them. So John, over to you. Welcome. Okay, thank you, Kathy. <clears throat> wow, I, I'm so happy to be with all of you. My connection with the Peace Alliance goes back pretty early in my um, beginning with not and working with nonviolent communication and. Um, yeah, there's just through the years, uh, there's been a lot of overlap between the, the people involved in the Peace Alliance movement and the um, Campaign for Department of Peace and the nonviolent communication world. And so there was a, a time I was quite, quite connected to a number of people, leaders in the, in the Peace Alliance world. So it's really familiar territory, but then I sort of haven't had a lot of contact uh, for a while. And, um, and then more recently through through Kathy um, kind of coming back and it just feels really wonderful. I, I listened to the 
the uh, event on Sunday with Dennis Kucinich, and it was so moving and inspiring to to hear him again. Been a long time since I heard him. I one of the better memories of that I have, my, like big kind of moments. It seemed like uh, was was Dennis was. Uh, running for president, I think he t two times he did, but it, I don't remember. I think the first, the first 2004 time, um, I was with Marshall Rosenberg, and we went to meet up with Dennis because Dennis was really interested in nonviolent communication and being part of the platform, and um, and just a lot of this this overlap between the two communities. And so I got to go hang out with Dennis for a bit, and it was just like one of the great like one of the great moments of. Uh, you know, just like meeting someone, a presidential candidate. And uh, I just thought it was so cool. So anyways, that really lives in my memory. Um, and so I'm just so glad I get to speak to you all today. I, um, you know, in terms of like some things I, I heard Dennis talk about um, a, uh, yeah, a culture of peace, of course, and structures of peace and like the vision that I've had for a while now is, and Kathy, you mentioned it in the introduction, but that I really see that the health and wellness movement is like this big umbrella of, uh, of like this focus human beings are having on health and what makes us healthy. And to me, communicating empathically, how to have, you know, the skills of empathic communication, the language of that is just to me part of what it means to be healthy, healthy with each other as human beings, but also healthy with the planet, the environment, the ecosystems. And of course, peace is, and dealing with conflict is an essential part of that as well. So health in, in terms of how we deal with conflicts. Um, so just that, um, yeah, that, that, that way that, um, hmm, I'm just gonna pause for a second. So structures of peace, I heard Dennis mention that word. And I've been using the phrase structures of empathy, empathy, empathic structures of conversation. So as, uh, as Kathy mentioned too, I've been doing this political, having facilitating conversations across the political divide for almost about nine months now, every Wednesday and started doing that uh, when the campaign in, in the US here where uh, campaign season was really heating up for the, uh, uh, for the election. And um, a colleague and I decided to create a forum for people to come together and talk about these really heated political issues, which unfortunately are still more polarized than ever, uh, it seems. But, um, but back then we just wanted to do something and bring the, this, the nonviolent communication something to the conversation, but with people that maybe didn't know anything about that, the, 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 the approach. So um, where, what, what evolved there was that the idea that if we have a certain structure at, a, uh, at that group level, then it was more, there was a, a way to structure that really led to empathy happening. And, and it came out, it comes out of my work of two with mediate your life to have what we call maps of conversation. So depending on the, the territory of conflict that we're in, 
there are these, we've come up with these kind of roadmaps of how do you navigate that particular conversation? It could be an inner conversation with ourselves when we're in conflict or between ourselves and others or between other people. And if you have a, uh, a map that, that contains these essential skills of empathic nonviolent communication, then you can, you can much more easily navigate. So this idea that it's not only about skills, but it's about structure and it's about um, the form and the, like the container that holds the conversation. And that doing this across the aisle process for nine months now, and just seeing week after week, you know, people showing up, talking about really difficult things on a political level, um, just how, how important, how profound to, to create that structure that sort of shapes people being able to use the, uh, the skills. And, and basically the approach is that um, to focus on understanding separate from agreeing or disagreeing. So that's, it's, you know, sounds kind of obvious, right? But it's actually, especially around politically charged issues, really difficult. Um, so to, to be able to really practice and stretch the ability to hear and understand um, and really putting aside whether we agree or disagree on play, things that really matter a lot. And then, and then also the, the structure of the conversation that supports being able to drop down into um, what, what connects us universally what, as, as human beings. And I heard uh, Dennis speaking of that too, actually, yesterday on, on Sunday, that um, the idea of unity and um, kind of that oneness experience. And I've really found that, um, that it's, that that's really the key for me. And it's not just the, not just language. So in the work of nonviolent communication, I imagine many, or at least some of you, maybe many of you are familiar with it one way or the other. Uh, but one of the, the kind of at the core of it is getting to what's universal, to the, to the needs we share. So there's a language, a way to use language that is about how do we connect um, in a con on our underlying commonality and the sameness that we share. So that, um, that there's that there's a language of our of our human needs that does that, but for me it's it's been this integration of language and and consciousness, so that it's it's our ability to be aware and aware of what we're thinking. So our mind, observing our mind and feeling into our bodies and the sensations and emotions in our bodies, but to bring awareness, the awareness of those two levels of our experience as individuals, and then be able to kind of expand out into what's universal. So this both kind of honoring our individuality and others individuality, but also being able to experience how we're all part of the same, Marshall would say, created out of the same energy. We're all part of the same wholeness. And I was so moved by hearing how Dennis talks about that still as a, as a politician and you know working in the, some of the hardest places I imagine on the political landscape and still holding that spiritual perspective of how this, this, this consciousness of our unity. So, so to be able to actually go there though, how do we actually not just have the, the, the intention or the desire, but the actual skills and the structure, to be able to structure a conversation that actually takes us to not only honoring our differences, but getting to where we universally um, are one that we're part of, we can actually like, experience that we're, um, 
part of the same human family, part of the same web of life on the planet. Um, so let's see, I think, um, I think I'll share. Yeah, I was gonna say a little bit more across the aisle, but I think I'll go to um, tell us a couple of quick stories um, to kind of share my experience with this work. And then I'd like to open up to questions and people, things people wanna share on this, in this area, this um, of, of what I like to generally call empathic communication. So as I said, my background is in the body of work called nonviolent communication, but I like to just generally think of it as what communication that connects us empathically and that it, and returning us when we lose it to this quality of connection that's empathic, that's empathy, that's how we're the same uh, under, underneath and underlying our differences. So one of the most profound experiences I had, they're really like, it was one of these epic moments in life where like my whole life changed because of it. Um, I was, it was in, um, early 2002. So 9-11 had just happened. I guess the, 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 the peace, uh, the movements towards the um, Department of Peace and Peace Alliance were just starting at that same time, um, which I didn't know at that moment. But I was with Marshall Rosenberg and my colleague Ike Laster. And we're at a board meeting with in the Nonviolent Communication Board in Europe. And Marshall was going to go to Pakistan uh, because the uh, the bombings were happening in Afghanistan and uh, right after 9-11. And so all these refugees had streamed, were streaming across the border from Afghanistan to the Pakistan. And the, so these massive refugee camps and Marshall had the idea to go and do some nonviolent communication training there. And Ike and I found out about it and we said, Hey, Marshall, can we go? And he said, yeah, but we're at this board meeting just before that. And it got so dangerous that, um, Marshall couldn't go. It just, the State Department was putting out warnings not to go. And so he just, uh, as a sort of high profile figure, he, he, he chose not to go. But I could already left early because he had bad jet lag. So he wanted to get there early. And I just felt this incredible being like compelled to want to go also, <laughs> even though it was crazy and it was getting really dangerous. But, and I did, and Marshall and others were saying, no, no, you can't go. But I just, I got to go, I got to go, you know? And I went and, um, and, uh, <laughs> and I got really scared when I was on the plane, but luckily uh, uh, we, we got there, we got into the camps and we mediated a, uh, without Marshall. So we just followed the plan and got, we started in the South of and, and Karachi and we made it all the way up to the Northwest Frontier Province. And we got our way into one of the camps and all these elders came from all over the whole region to, to be, meet with us because we had a conversation with the, the, the colonel that was overseeing all the camps and he, we used some communication to help uh, get his support. And then, so anyways, we were meeting with them and we ended up mediating a conflict that came up in the camp and in, in, in our meeting with them. And it was like, you know, this was a, a real conflict like breaking out. And we ended up saying, hey, no, let's, hold on, we can show you something here that we can, because before then they couldn't really figure out why we were there through all the language translation and difficulties with that. But we facilitated this, this you know, nonviolent communication mediation of taking a, an elder from representing two sides of the conflict and getting to the needs, the universal human needs of first the, the, the one 
and then asking the other to reflect that back. Uh, and then the second one and getting him to reflect the needs, the basic human needs that they both had. And, and then uh, the whole group of these two and the elders, we all kind of brainstormed and came up with a, a solution to, to that, to that um, conflict that kind of come up in the group. And uh, it was, and it worked and it was amazing. And everybody like got up and was like cheering and clapping and um, cause we, we'd sort of, we helped solve this problem in a totally different way through this communication of our universal needs that, that our commonality, our oneness with each other as human beings. So uh, we saw even with all these incredible challenges um, that this worked in such a profound way. And, and, uh, and then that led to, to Ike and I doing our work together. And um, yeah, just so, so many things flowed from, from that moment. And it, uh, it kind of came from following the heart and, um, and seeing the power of this work across the world in um, completely different uh, culture and languages. And so that's, that was like kind of my um, big life experience that led to what, what all the things I've done since then, focusing on conflict and mediating conflict and then bringing that into our lives, mediating every aspect of our life and then having these conversation structures or maps to do that. The, the second story I'm going to tell is a, um, a baseball story. So it's much more personal uh, in a different way than going across the world and being in, you know, a uh, totally foreign country. This is uh, very close to home. Uh, my son, <laughs> he was nine at the time. He was on this little league baseball team and they'd gone to the, I, and I was actually the assistant coach. So uh, we made it all, it was, they're a good team. My son's like one of the best kids on the team and made it all the way to the championship game. And so it's a big game. All oh, the parents and lots of people from the community are out. It's like a big deal. This, this little league championship game, you know, but it's still, it's nine-year-old. Um, uh, so we're, it's like halfway through the game. We're down a number of runs, um, and uh, my son gets up to bat and there's the pitch and, and he, he just crushes it. It goes out over the center fielder to the back fence. He's ra he races around the bases. There's a kid in front of him. They both get home. They score two runs. You know, the whole tide of the game is changing. It's so we're jumping up and down. I know the parents and the coaches and the players and, we're, and the, all the other parents. And then before we, and then suddenly the coach of the other team runs out onto the field and he starts talking to the umpires like, and they're talking, talking, talking. And I had this sinking, like this pit in my stomach. Like, what is going on? What are they talking about? Like, this was a clear, like, what, what's there to talk about? And apparently, so what we found out was our head, my head coach, the coach of our team was at third base and, um, uh, and the coach of the other team was like behind him, the fence, you know, the dugout behind. So he was like watching very intently. And apparently what the coach of the other team said that our coach, when the first player had rounded the base and he fell actually, and then he was getting back up and, and, and that the other coach said, our coach kind of helped him up a little bit, kind of touched him or just helped kind of nudge him along. And you, if you're, you can't touch a player uh, as you're, if you're, um, a coach or you know you're in that position at third base as the coach base coach so anyways 
the kid said no that you know he didn't feel anything and but it was this and and the the uh, the call got changed so the the first kid got called out and then therefore that made three outs and so my son's run didn't count and i was livid i was just like furious um like it was like literally like so it's like almost like hatred in my heart uh for this coach and and i'd already had enemy images of him uh as you know the coach of this rival team we sort of played them a few times during the season then we were meeting them in the championship and i already didn't like him heard all these stories about how he just like kind of you know wanted to win at all costs and kind of an ass and just not a a nice person and just had heard all these stories right and then this confirmed everything that i thought i didn't like about him you know that he's this cheater and you know doesn't care about anything but winning and so all these enemy images and judgments and right and uh so i'm just fuming after the game it's like a couple it's like a day or two i'm just sitting with this i'm still kind of upset and uh and then it's uh, you know it dawns on me like you know i've got some skills here i could use uh i'm a little embarrassed it took took a little while because i was so passionate about it but then i like you know i can really do some work on myself around this and so I, you know, I went into this empathy process of uh, self-empathy. So we can use these basic components that come out of nonviolent communication. And what are we observing? So observing all my thoughts and judgments and what happened, what I saw happening. And then how do I, how did I feel? Yeah, anger and just real upset and uh, just such distress in my in my in my body. But it's mostly like that anger. But the more I sat with it and felt it, it's like, yeah, okay. And then I started connecting my anger. So connecting our feelings to what we, to what we need and want as human beings. Right? so then I was searching for what, what, what did I want? What does I need? Yeah, you know, um, fairness, kind of fairness and justice and um, honesty. And yeah, so that, you know, that, helped a little bit to name, to find those needs and kind of name, to name that. Um, but then I just stayed with it and I dropped deeper, which is often what happens is these layers of our, of our, of our human needs, what we want. So to make that shift from, from what we think and what we don't want and how we're judging into what we want and what we deeply universally want. So then I, I, I found it was actually love for my son. So, cause I saw him sitting on the bench after that crying because this home run, this big moment got taken away. So that was my thinking. Like he, you know, this coach took it away. He took, he robbed him, he robbed him, he robbed our team, you know? And, but when I got to the need for love, the love of my child, the love of this team, the wanting all their hard work and efforts to, um, to, to be fulfilled and, um, so it's like deep care and love and um, for these, for my son and for these boys, you know, and for how hard all of us had worked to, to get to that place. Yeah. And then suddenly everything kind of melt started melting in me. Like the anger started just turning to, to like a deep sadness. The sorrow of just had the loss of like a wonderful moment that suddenly started turning into, I, it turned quickly into something like dramatic, practically, um, like, and heart-wrenching, you know, but then it, it just, yeah, it felt, I just started to feel the heartbreak and the sadness because of this, this, the needs for, for love and care. 
And it, then it wasn't so much about the enemy images of this guy. It was about my love for my son as a dad, you know, and for the, all the kids in the team that I'd gotten so close to. So then, but we don't have to stop there because then I remember, yeah, that I could also go to empathy for, for this coach. Because up until then, I had the last thing I wanted to do was empathize with him. I was just so furious. But after I did this empathy with my feelings and needs, there's a little space in me to be curious, to be curious. Okay, so what would, man, what could have been going on for him? He's sitting there behind my coach. He's watching every move. He's, he's wanting to win this game. It's a big game. Everybody's watching. What's going on for him? Okay, he also wants, uh, yeah, wants things to be fair because he thought our coach had cheated or was cheating by touching the player. And okay, same thing as me. All right, all right. And then the obvious struck me love for his child who was on the other team, for his players, and, and just want and i then i started to imagine oh if he did think that there's some unfairness then he probably felt like he had to do something to to sort of support the team and fight for the team and and stand up for them and um but it, i just realized that oh wow yeah whatever his thoughts or motivations are like underneath that he's acting from the same thing as me love and care for his son and players on his team and then, you know, I wanted empathy for us and, and, and wanting care for us. And, but, the, but the needs were the same. Empathy, love, care. And then that totally shifted me. I just like all the, those enemy images and anger just, just really evaporated. And then, and then asked, what's the request? So that's of these various components that's, that when we get to what our needs are, what's our request? And the request to myself is to go talk to the guy. And then first I'm like, no, 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 I don't like this guy. I'm not going to talk. And then it's, no, it kept coming. I was like, want it, you know, you know how to do this. Go have a conversation with him. Check it out. See what happened. So I did. I went up to him. I caught him at a moment at a, another time. And, uh, and it, you know, it's a good thing because he, uh, well, I'll say it in a moment. And I'm, I'm almost done, Kathy, because I know we're going to go to Q&A in a moment. But um so I, I, I go up to him, him and he happened to be with another uh, assistant coach on, from his side. And I just went and I said, you know, man, that was rough, you know, and, and he could tell, like, <laughs> you know, there's all this awkwardness for all of us after that game, uh, both sides. And uh, but I was just like, hey, man, what what happened? Like, that was hard. That was brutal. Like, what was going on for you? Like, and then he started telling the story of our my coach, my head coach of how apparently I didn't know this, but my head coach had this reputation in the league amongst the parents and the coaches and stuff to be kind of also someone that kind of wanted to win at all costs and could be a little underhanded at times or, or kind of manipulative or just trying to win and doing things that weren't quite, you know, just, you know, kind of trying to win at all costs idea the same way I had seen him. And that he was all, oh, I got to hear and feel him that he was so sincere and he was so like, I could tell he was kind of distraught himself about the way the whole thing went down. And then he said, you know, I just, I just was so uh, not wanting to let him get away with it, you know, and, 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 uh, and thinking that he, 
he was really the one that was trying to take things, you know, take the game from them. And so I just could completely hear his, from his perspective, he was thinking he was doing the absolute right thing for his team. And that he really was like, um, filled with all these negative enemy images of our, and I knew, I knew my head coach really well, and I didn't see him that way at all. I knew him totally different, but he didn't know that he'd heard all the stories, just like I'd heard the stories about him. So then I got to really feel experience from him. Um, why, how it led for him to do what he did. And then we, you know, we talked and then I talked about how painful it was, you know, to have my, my son's home run and not ha taken away and all that. And he empathized with that. And we just had a great conversation. It was just really, really, and I just found myself liking him. So all these negative, I mean, it was completely false. And I just ended up thinking this, I like this guy a lot. I love, I like the way he's talking. I like who he, I, I didn't know. I just felt this connection with him as we talked and we kind of got to the bottom of what happened and we shared each other's perspectives. And then, and then that was such a good thing because he was the, he ended up being the head coach of the all-star team late that summer. And we were all together a lot. So it would have been so awful if, uh, if I just had been hating him all summer. And in fact, it was the opposite. I really got to like him and, and considered him just someone I really cared about and talked to a lot and connected with. So that to me is an example of like radical peace building and um, conflict resolution when things get really hot and heated and it's possible with these kind of skills. And if we can structure that into conversation to facilitate. So that's, mm. that's my baseball story. And I think Kathy, and we might be ready for some Q and A. Yes. What do you think? Yes, yes. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, it's just, just uh, so, I don't know, confounding that, it's hard for us to have conversations, right? When we're feeling these difficult feelings, it's so hard. So um, who'd like to have, who has a question that they'd like to ask of John? Or just something you wanna share related to yeah, this great. work and how it connects with peace building yeah. stuff. Looks like right. Jana. Jana. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, thank you for sharing and really lovely to hear you. And thank you, Kathy, for bringing John and everything else. Um, I was just wondering if you'd ever used it in like with extremists, with like really like so-called haters, like, you know, white supremacists or so forth. And if you had any kind of example of that. Um, not, not that uh, what you just uh, th th those kind of situations that you spoke to I mean I've been because I've been doing it for so long there's certainly been very intense situations that I've been in and people extremely angry and judgmental and you know but uh, but in terms of going into uh, more really physically violent or potentially physically violent situations or uh, yeah white supremacist kind of stuff or things no, I haven't, haven't had that, that experience yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to, in a way, <laughs> part of me at least, wants to just keep expanding this work and work with a, a, a organization like Peace Alliance and all the people in places that I can that are doing this kind of peace work in the world. And so, um, but my experiences uh, uh, and with being around other people practicing this work and um, is that no matter kind of how difficult that, we're human and we're wired as humans to have our thoughts and feelings connect to our underlying needs. 
and that we can bring a kind of conscious awareness that kind of helps us step out of that into 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 what's more this kind of universal space and i i've just seen it happen in so many ways in ways that you would think are just impossible and then magic not always sometimes you know for various reasons it doesn't happen but a lot of times it does and it's really incredible so yeah Kendra. Who else would like to ask something or like share Kendra? something? Yeah, oh, Kendra. I, I heard you, John, say that um, you found out, first you conjectured, and then you actually found out in conversation that the other person um, had the same, came from the same place. And, and so often that happens for me, and I just wondered, is, is that just a given that the other person in a dispute feels is coming from the same place? Or, or, or does that happen differently in different situations? It just ha- seems to happen universally for me. Yeah, yeah. In my experience, it's very common, very common. So when I'm, you know, whether it's my own experience or somebody else's, like if I'm mediating between people or I'm coaching, conflict coaching, that yeah, if 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 the one person has certain uh, needs of what they want at that at that human level, then I that's the I I am thinking to check to see if the other person has those same needs, or if if this person would guess or imagine maybe that the other person does, and and often it it is. So I'd say yeah, it, it does seem pretty universal. That maybe not always, but it's so common that when we're in conflict, the needs are the same or very similar and just very different ways of looking at the situation. Sometimes just polar opposite, like, like in this, the baseball story, like really it was the same story, but it was just flipped around and judging the other person with this, almost the same story. And I, I imagine that happens in war all the time, right? In various levels of warfare, like we're right, you're wrong, you're the evil ones. And, and we, we uh, both sides, are thinking the same kind of thing about the evil doers on the other side. And it's a, yeah, I think it really is universal. Yeah, Kendra, thanks. Yeah, we have a question in the chat from Chuck in Kentucky. How could this process be used to bring some Republicans and Democrats together to try and understand each other's points of view? Do you remember there was a time when uh, Dennis and Lynn McMullen were trying to get Marshall uh, to go into Congress, and there was some talk about that. That was yeah. many moons ago, but yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that, and uh, would have loved to see that happen, or you know, start to happen, just to see what Marshall would have done. Marshall is uh, just this—he uh, passed away a number of years ago now, but man, he was just amazing what he could do. Um, so yeah, that's totally a uh, a dream for me. And um, so the kind of work I've been doing, uh, I've been calling across the aisle, is is really developing the structure, the format for that. And oh, I was going to say this earlier. Now I said now. So the part of the structure is these four questions. So in terms of structure, four questions that kind of help each person as they're expressing a different political opinion to have, to go through these questions, and they. Um, they're pretty simple, but they tend to really help connect us. So the first is, what what is the specific issue or topic you want to focus on? 
And the second one is what belief or meaning do you give to it? So that kind of draws our attention and awareness to that we have beliefs and can we almost like observe we have beliefs and be able to talk about them that way as, as something that we can observe in a way. And then the third question is what emotions do you feel in your body? So that just invites the speaker to not only be up in their head thinking and believing and what, and, um, but to, to, to remember to drop, because really, if we can remember that not only to be up in our heads, but then to drop down into the body and put our attention and our awareness down into how we're feeling in the body and then have language that's really accurate for what we're feeling. And then from there, connecting deeper to what we want and need. So the, and the fourth question is, what, what do you want personally and universally? So just with having those questions, and I, I you know, would Republicans and Democrats and, and say state or national level do something like that? I don't know, but I'd love to see it, see if it could happen. And I think if people engage in, in, a, in some kind of empathic structure conversation process, I really believe the whole, like if you see these debates on TV, that's, that's, not, that's not a conversation, you know, to, to, to focus and, and, and structure the conversation so that it goes towards an empathic place. And I think if, if it's set up right, it can really happen, even even in places like that. Now, I know there's naivete and all the all the political machinations that go on, and I don't I don't know about all that yet. But um, I think it's possible to to have a different quality of conversation. Yeah. So I would want to try that structure with any uh, mm -hmm. politicians that are willing to give it a try. Or can you imagine being a talk show host with two opposing views and yeah. using NBC with them? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, may at some point I hope that that kind of entertainment will be even more entertaining than you know watching two people spar and fight and who's going to win to to actually experience some em empathic understanding happening when they start off polarized and vilifying or whatever they think and then shifting and we see this in the across the aisle every wednesday it's just so magical at times just to kind of see people starting off in such different places and then by the end it's like oh yeah we all want the same basic things and and you just need a way to help people drop down to that place so yeah that's so much more fulfilling to watch that i mean yeah there's some excitement in watching action movies or something but man the real heart fulfilling soul, you know, nourishing stuff is, is I think where we connect and watching people go from totally disconnected to connected. So I hope so, Kathy, that we'll see that at some point before yeah. too long. Well, so I, I just had we... this thought, we could bring yeah. a Democrat or Republican on here and you could mediate whatever yeah. the issue is. Yeah, I'd love to do that. If somebody can find, find them, we'll do it here. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one more question or, or comment. If you, oh, Charlie, oh, Carlene. I see Dan there. Hey, Dan, shout out to Dan Kahn. Uh, mm. Hi, Carlene, good to see you. Hi, yes. Uh, I wanted to make a comment about Dennis's uh, campaign for mayor. Mm -hmm. I was really turned off when he said that he was going to hire, I don't know how many hundreds more police. Mm. And I just thought that's not the right thing to be doing in this era when we're looking at, um, at 
and I hesitate to use the word defunding the police, looking at reimagining public safety. But then when I heard you say today that he's creating this something like a Department of Peace within the city of Cleveland, mm -hmm. then that would take care of that issue. It would be a way of reimagining re the police. Yes. Nonviolently, <laughs> without making anybody wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I heard him saying, because there's so much violence in Cleveland, I heard that right. you know, needing, needing the help to quell the violence, but to give the training mm -hmm. that enough really good training in nonviolence and creating peace, even in violent situations. How do you try to do that? As well as other types of people that know how to go into difficult situation, not just the police, so the other people that know have trained in other ways. So yeah, he has a big vision for that. I think all of that would be part of the 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 Department of Peace Building in, in, yeah. in Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody in the in the chat said that he's also hiring a hundred conflict resolution specialists. Yes, right. Yeah. So so conflict resolution people, yeah, yeah. Right. Just think, yeah, to have at the city level, state, national, just where mm -hmm. that is, that there's whole departments and um, just focused on how do we create peace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just feel so like we- Cleveland we to, could be a model for that. That's, I think, yeah, I think that's the vision. Yeah, that's- Yeah, that's great. That he's uh, sort of re-energizing re um, every you know through through running for mayor and uh seems like the timing is so good i don't know about you all but i just it just seems to me like this window is shrinking fast of our time uh, as human beings to to yeah create peace on the planet to respond to climate crisis to to deal with all the challenges that we're facing and we need to come together we need to know how to have communication and uh other things that uh training and whatnot that that help us cross the divides and heal the divides. So, so sometimes it's not just resolving a conflict of differences, it's about healing the tremendous hurt and pain and trauma that we carry, generational trauma, all kinds of trauma. And I'm glad there's so much emphasis on that now in the kind of popular culture. But to, you know, I just feel like we, uh, you know, if we have these tools, we can come together, we can work together. And, and then we can, I think we can solve these things. But man, not if not if we're polarized like we are now, like, like, and a time is of the essence. So I appreciate everybody being on this call and part of Peace Alliance and everything you're doing in your own lives to support peace, however small, just thank you. Thank you for what, what you're doing. And thank you, Kathy. Thank you, John. Thank you for what you're doing. We're all, all doing what we Possible can do. Possible to say anything? Are, say are, that we, are we over time? I, do you want him to say something real quick? I was, yes, because I noticed that that he has the picture of Nelson Mandela in the back. Yes. And I belong to an organization which I had shared with Kathy. We're in 192 countries and it's based on peace through inner transformation and the international mentor has met with Nelson Mandela, over 7,000 dignitaries from around the world talking about peace how do we negotiate how do we how do we really transform and it comes from 
this inner transformation we call the human revolution, which mm. is each person changing because it's not about it's not about the government's going to change and everything on the outside, but how how does each one each individual and so Daisaka Wikeda talks to these people. They're all philosophers and political people and scientists, and then he writes books on these conversations and talking about each person. Yeah, Sandra, do you want to put a link in the chat? I'm going to go ahead and- No, I don't know how to to do that, but it's called, the. the, I'll just mention the organization. It's it's, it's GI, Soka Gakkai International. And like I said, we're in 192 countries and I don't know how to do your chat box, but it's amazing. And maybe I can connect with, you know, the speaker more about it, but um, sure. yeah, Thank you me. feel really great and happy and you see things are, things are possible. Things are possible to change. Yeah. We have there's a groundswell happening that's uh, just under the surface, hopefully just about ready to Explore. all come together. <laughs> Positive, positively. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. So I'm going to, I'm going to start the close. And and in a few minutes, we'll be transitioning to the Department of Peacebuilding portion of the call to celebrate the 20, to commemorate the 20th uh, year of advocating for this bill, 20 years of advocating. Uh, We're gonna paste some links in the chat so you know everything going on with us. Uh, First is our website, peacealliance.org. The Peace Alliance has a mission to empower civic action for a culture of peace. Next is a link to our pod, our Peace on Podcasts. And here you can find the podcast for all of our national peace builder calls, our Department of Peace Building calls, our Hope Story Circles on the second and fourth Saturdays, and other great content. And we're also including a link to the Hope Story Circle webpage. Uh, we're guided by the five cornerstones of peace, empowering community peace building, humanizing justice systems, cultivating personal peace, fostering international peace, and teaching and practicing peace in schools. And as part of teaching and practicing peace in schools, we have a 10-week virtual course on practicing peace in schools that can be found at the link in the chat. The five cornerstones of peace building are endorsed in our blueprint for peace and clicking on the link in the chat to consign the Blueprint for Peace, which will notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace um, and that you want those policy priorities reflected in legislation. So all of this, our five cornerstones of peace building and the Blueprint for Peace, feed the vision and legislation for a Department of Peace Building. This bill calls for a department led by a cabinet level secretary of peace building where evidence-based and practical programs will have a department highlighted to uh, replicate these programs. Uh, And there's a link for the department of peace building in the chat. If you love and benefit from the programs we offer, consider donating. We are a small nonprofit and appreciate donations of any size. In particular, we appreciate monthly donors so we can continue to support these programs with sustainable income. 
And finally, our calendar of, of events where you can find all the information about our national monthly calls, our hope story circles, the Department of Peacebuilding monthly calls and anything else we're having. Uh, and so I wanna close with a quote, this portion of the call, and then we'll uh, go into the part, Department of Peacebuilding portion. I found a quote on Ubuntu that I had never seen before. I, I, probably most of you have heard of Ubuntu. This is a story that an anthropologist proposed a game to children of an African tribe. Putting a basket of fruit under a tree, he told the children that the first one to reach the basket would win all the fruit. The children joined hands, all ran together and collected the fruit as a group. The anthropologist asked the children why they hadn't tried to be the first one to the fruit. They replied, Ubuntu, how can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? Ubuntu is an ancient African tribal word meaning humanness, human kindness, and humanity toward others. It's a philosophy that says, I am what I am because of who we all are. Ubuntu is interconnectedness. So Ubuntu to everyone. And I'm going to introduce the Department of Peacebuilding portion and then Karen Johnson. So as I said, the Department of Peacebuilding is a bill before the US, US House of Representatives. We don't have the bill in the Senate yet, but we have had it in the Senate in the past. And this will highlight and strengthen our current evidence-based and practical peace-building strategies to apply nonviolent remedies to domestic and international conflict and violence. This legislation needs every one of us to make our voices heard in the halls of Congress, because without that, um, it probably won't become uh, law or won't become a department. It's gonna take every one of us and, and everybody we can recruit. So I'd like to introduce Karen Johnson. She's been lobbying for this bill for most of the time it's been in Congress. She's one of the founding members of the Peace Alliance National Department of Peacebuilding Committee, which was formed in early 2011. Karen's worked with this committee to organize multiple events and advocacy days. She began her volunteer career with the Peace Alliance as a congressional district team leader and then became state coordinator for the state of Illinois. I've known her since she began working with the Peace Alliance and I'm grateful for everything she and, and others have done to keep this bill moving forward. Uh, so Karen, over to you. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we have other founding members of the Department of Peace uh, Committee and campaign uh, on the call as well and just embracing everyone here. So it sounds like we have um, a lot of people feeling the same thing and maybe expressing in different words. I was thinking that we are having an insurgence of good troublemakers here at the Peace Alliance. And we're very heartened that they carry with them the same intention of the proposed Department of Peace Building in their hearts. We stand on the shoulders of so many known and unknown in recent and distant history uh, today in this movement. So what I'm going to be talking about is the history of the campaign and legislation, but in a way that highlights 
uh, why now is such an amazing time in history to get involved and devote five minutes or five hours into advancing this legislation or any peace building infrastructure like the Cleveland uh, peace infrastructure that Dennis is proposing now in our government. Uh, so let me demonstrate three key factors that uh, I've noticed have been a factor for the last 20 years. And, and certainly even since uh, the 1790s when Benjamin Banneker and Benjamin Rush wrote the first um, Office of Peace essay. Um, and so we're all building back better now. And now I think is the time to build a Secretary of Peace into our government. Uh, so number one, uh, the bill on the Department of Peace Building makes sense to intelligent people who have no personal conflict of interest with world peace. <laughs> a little bit of disclaimer there. Um, at the current generation of Congress people and staffers are more receptive than ever to us. And we really feel like they're on our team when we meet with them lately. And number three, America has sent a presidential regime home that threatened our democracy and planet. And we can do anything we set our minds to. And then lastly, I'm going to share a little about a couple of peace pilgrims who spoke at the last congressional hearing for Department of Peace way back in 1950. So it's about time we get another hearing in place as well. All right. So this, um, along the lines of the bill makes sense to intelligent people. Uh, this is my favorite story from my early days in the campaign. I was the Illinois State Coordinator uh, for Peace Once a Piece of the Pie Day, as many people know, that was kind of reclaiming the origin story of Mother's Day. And in May, we gathered 11 people to attend a meeting in the Chicago at then Senator Barack Obama's office, uh, including a 13-year-old who wanted to attend the Peace Academy, which is in the bill for those who are familiar, after college. <clears throat> after the meeting, I asked the 13-year-old how he liked the meeting. He was absolutely glowing with connection and enthusiasm and rattled off a couple of sentences to the effect that it was one of the highlights of his life so far. Uh, and then he asked me, so how, how did it compare to other congressional meetings? And I said, I don't know. This was my first one, too. <laughs> so, but I thought it went fantastic, too. It was just an amazing experience for everybody who was present there. Um, so someday I may create a video around that and share a little bit more of the details. Uh, but I, I, I say that to go on to, a, you know, nine months later or so, we went to the 2007 Peace Alliance National Conference. Um, it was in February, and it was actually shortly before Obama's presidential candidacy announcement. And we asked the legislative aide, who was the person who was on a conference call with us uh, when we were in the Chicago office that day, um, what Obama thought of the legislation, that we had been getting questions from everybody in Illinois. What does he think about the legislation? And he just kind of stopped and smiled knowingly at us, like he gets asked what he thinks about a lot of things. And he said, you can tell people that he has read the bill and he has no objection to anything in it. So intelligent people think the bill makes sense when they have no conflict of interest with world peace. And that was at a time where it was hard to get people to read the bill. Uh, we worked with that. So it was really heartening that uh, Obama on practically the eve of his presidential <coughs> career had read the bill. 
So number two, the current generation of congressional congresspeople and staffers are more receptive than ever. Um, the new generation are largely different than those we met with 20 years ago. Certainly we've always had some people who were very receptive and, and others who uh, kind of tolerated us. <laughs> there have always been good meetings, but who here isn't inspired by AOC? Whether or not you agree with everything or anything she says or does, just having that energy in Congress right now. Uh, so the legislative aides and staffers that we met with virtually in 2020 in September, where we usually go to Washington, D.C., were very impressive in the question that they asked and the information that they requested, and also in their backgrounds and aspirations for themselves and our country and the world. Um, for years, more staffers arrived to our meetings better informed about the bill and its history and also about its potential path to passing and ask good questions. Um, so last year, a staffer asked us if we would create a document mapping out how the different government agencies might interact with the Secretary of Peace and the Department of Peacebuilding staff. Um, that this was the type of thing that he would need to take to his congressperson, his boss, to make a case for him to support the bill. So we're working on that. <laughs> uh, we've had some conversations, but it also, I just wanted to share that it fully feels like a significant milestone. As some of you know, paid corporate lobbyists often write legislation or prepare research documents for Congress people. Um, so now here we are, we the people being asked to present a paper, making a case for how beneficial, to, beneficial a Secretary of Peace would be to the government agencies and officials who work for the good of the people. So he essentially invited us into the conflict among strategies for peace and to ride our way through to the other side of the conflict, um, to light the path to meeting the need we all share. Um, so again, the current generation of Congress peoples and staffers are more receptive than ever and really inviting us into their world to make this happen. <clears throat> so number three, again, America has sent a presidential regime home and can do anything we set our minds to. If we didn't know it in our heart of hearts before, we know it now. Americans have it in them uh, to do what needs to be done. Uh, I'd love to read a book someday about everything that happened in Georgia leading up to the runoff elections. Um, so many people in so many places really rallied to send that presidential regime home and to get more of, you know, change the makeup of Congress. So in recent years, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, Parkland student leaders, um, they've all been getting out there and um, really all when we're working at first rights and justice, the essence is the need for peace. Um, so I even heard that one of the Parkland students is planning to uh, create a pillow company so that he can uh, take business away from the MyPillow guy who actually helped fund the failed regime. So creative ideas on how to effect change as well. So America sent a presidential regime home and we can do anything we set our mind to. So now I'd like to um, just share a snapshot of historical peace pilgrims. Uh, a few years ago, the Department of Peace Committee, mostly Kendra Mann and her daughter, started looking up information about past Department of Peace building legislation. We knew that the first bill was introduced around this in 1937, even though the idea had been around in different forms before that, but we didn't know much else. 
So I'm going to read a, a brief newspaper article. It's about three minutes on the last hearing on the legislation for a Department of Peace. Um, and then I'll follow it up with a, a letter that one of the citizens who testified that day um, sent uh, to the chair of that meeting. So this is from the Philadelphia Bulletin. And the hearing again was on February 28th of 1950. It's called a Department of Peace by Holmes Alexander. Washington, not often in this sophisticated town do you see idealism score a clean win over worldliness and boredom. But this happened the other day on Capitol Hill and it was a moving experience. A small group of pilgrims from West Virginia were in Washington to testify for a seemingly hopeless proposal, HR 4005, to create a new seat in the president's cabinet, the Department of Peace. Right away, you sensed an atmosphere of polite NUI among the members of the subcommittee on expenditures in the executive departments, which was conducting the hearing. Well, this group began to chant the familiar refrain. Its leader was R.M. Davis, a Mor Morgantown coal merchant, and he talked for 20 some minutes in the tired monotone of an elderly man. What the country needs, said Davis, is the Department of Peace with the sole duty of staving off a World War III. That was a big concern in those days. Uh, the subcommittee chaired by Representative Lanham, a Democrat from Georgia, was not impressed. The questioning of Davis showed that the committeemen had heard all this before, but Davis refused to be shaken. There was no substitute for a Department of Peace, he replied. And as he left the witness chair, he said solemnly, I will never give up as long as I live. This quiet determination had its effect. The committee paid closer attention to the three pilgrims who'd accompanied Davis up from Morgantown. As these men testified, the idea of a peace department began to crystallize. Melvin C. Snyder, an ex-congressman who wore a Purple Heart emblem, said that the people who fought wars were sick of doing so. The peace department, as he conceived it, would represent the ordinary people of the world, not their political leaders. Carl Frazier, professor of political economy, said that the peace department should properly handle all such peace-promoting agencies as the Voice of America, UNESCO, the Fulbright Fellowships, and even the National Science Foundation. T. Leroy Hooper, a Methodist minister, emphasized the need to train young leaders in the cause of peace, something which the past and present generations had badly bungled. And we're still working on that. And Representative Stagers, of West Virginia, who had introduced the bill, pointed out that every nation had its war department and that the emphasis should be changed. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, the atmosphere of boredom and can't-be-done worldliness had cleared away. These pilgrims had a solid idea. Why, after all, should peace be a mere byproduct of government? Then something happened which I never saw before at a congressional hearing. Somebody suggested a prayer. We all stood up and Reverend Hooper prayed that these deliberations would bear fruit in the mercy of God. And we also have a 78 page transcript of the testimony at that hearing um, that Kendra and her daughter obtained. Uh, so here's a letter dated that same day 
from Bill Stover, who was the president of the Dale Carnegie Leadership Training Institute in DC at the time. And he thanked him for extending the courtesy and privilege of testifying before his committee in favor of the bill. Uh, he said it was his, it has been my good fortune to attend numerous congressional hearings, but never have I seen one conducted more fairly or with more judicial orderliness than the one over which you presided this morning. It has occurred to me that HR 405 might be more readily appreciated if it were introduced with a suitable preamble. Uh, Dennis took care of that for us <laughs> in recent history. A bill of such vast importance covering such a complex subject and involving so vitally all our people deserves the most favorable attention possible. I trust your members will give serious and sincere consideration to the possibility of the establishment of a permanent full-time committee to investigate, study, and conduct research um, into this matter of finding the causes of war and the road to peace. He goes on to say more, um, but uh, he also says that he predicts that the advocate of a committee sponsoring such a worthy project will find millions of our citizens in hearty approval. <laughs> so again, we have intelligent people uh, seeing the light on this legislation uh, in the past and, and now, shifts in the consciousness level of conscious and Congress and staff, and an American populace that is owning its power for change. Now more than ever, the Department of Peacebuilding is an idea whose time has come. I have a quote from Dale Carnegie in honor of that letter. You never achieve success unless you like what you are doing. So I encourage everyone to find something they like doing around peacebuilding and or this bill and do it. And we don't often quote Elvis Presley, but he said, do something worth remembering. And we heard a lot of things worth remembering today before and during uh, my talk here. So let's start with just one simple action for tonight. I think there's going to be a link in the uh, chat room here for asking your congressperson to co-sponsor Department of Peacebuilding. And it takes probably less than a minute uh, to do that. And uh, um, you can also email Nancy at the Peace Alliance if you'd like to connect with us more or get on our mailing list. So thank you. And back to the Peace Alliance. Nancy, yeah. do you want to share anything about advocacy days real quick? You're muted. Nancy, you're still muted. We've been doing advocacy days um, forever, every year in September, usually. We're doing it uh, again this uh, September at the probably the last week in September where we're setting up congressional meetings and we want you all to participate. So if you can do that, please uh, email me at nancy at peacealliance.org. It's uh, really fun and really interesting and it gives you a, a real sense of being part of the government. So please do that and um, Thank you so much. And one of my favorite quotes is each of us is put here in this time and this place to personally decide the future of humankind. Did you think you were put here for something less? Mm. Chief Arvel Looking Horse. And thank you so much, Kathy and John and every Karen, everybody who's been on the call. Yeah, thank you everybody for coming and staying and we will see you next month.
Good night. Thank you.